everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I'm your host, Taylor Rockwell. Daryl Grove is not with me. He is away in Boston, but he will return next week to help me review the first round of the MLS playoffs, as well as look at some of the action from this past weekend. Ryan Bailey is out of town, so Daryl Grove will step in. Uh, But I said review. We have not yet previewed those games, and that's exactly what we're doing on this show with Joe Lowry. Uh, Joe has been on the show many times. We love having Joe on because he combines uh, tactical expertise with an ability to convey that tactical expertise. And in this case, he's going to be doing so about every single uh, playoff team that is playing this round. We'll have Joe back on next week to review these games and then look ahead to uh, games featuring LA and NYCFC. But for this one, it's only playoff teams in action this weekend, sort of look at the individual games, what might happen, what the trends could be, who the key players are, and what the key performers might need to be for certain teams to get certain results. Uh, Joe has an insane amount of knowledge in his brain that he somehow was able to convey via audio format, so credit to Joe for that. Uh, And with that in mind, I will stop talking about Joe and instead let Joe talk for himself. Joining me once again on the other end of the line, all the way from the southwestern United States. I don't know why I feel the need to point out geography, but I am. It's Joe Lowry of The Athletic. Hello, Joe. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Taylor. It's always good to chat with you. It's always good to have you on, especially when we've got uh, MLS playoffs coming up, which we do this weekend. Uh, You wrote a great piece for The Athletic where you had some tactical insights on every single team that made the playoffs uh, or will be playing this weekend. We're going to talk a lot about that in the in the uh, near future. But first, we're recording this after the USA's uh, two no loss to Canada. Daryl and I did our lengthy uh, postgame review as we are wont to do. Uh, But given that it's been almost a day thereabouts, Joe, I'm wondering where you are on this loss. Well, I'm a little sleep deprived for one. You guys yeah. were uh, up late doing your review. I was I was up late up late uh, typing up my analysis of the game as well. So I think we're both on the same page in that yeah, regard. A little bit. A little bit. Um, so between yawns here and there, on the whole, I know I'm doing fine. It, I think the U.S. is pretty much in the same spot as it was before. We're just a little bit more keyed into some of the issues now. Maybe our eyes have been opened a little bit more than they were before. But at the end of the day. It is just soccer. We love it, and it's a lot of our livelihoods. But it does help to get some perspective now and then on, on what kind of really matters. And, and if you were going with like your sort of basic takeaways uh, from your review, what were sort of the, the key things that you focused on from last night? From a tactical perspective, I, I went through after I finished typing up that piece, still unable to sleep, and, and listened to a lot of the review that you and Daryl did. And I think you guys hit on a lot of those points really, really well. The, the first thing that I kind of focused on was – the United States defensive scheme uh, and just kind of how confusing it is. You guys, I know for a fact you guys talked about that for a while and mm-hmm. have talked about it in the past. The U.S. really struggled to contain Canada's midfield with that overload that John Herdman put into central midfield. So that was one thing that I looked at, the, the sort of lack of pressure and intensity and, and just kind of standing in the middle but n- maybe not really doing anything from a defensive perspective. And then offensively, I took a look at uh, sort of how the United States maybe were a little bit too listless in possession and, and maybe we didn't see the same amount of off-all movement and, and really purposeful possession play that I think kind of Berhalter has branded this team to be. Uh, especially at the end of the game, we saw a real lack of intensity, you know, them just kind of passing the ball back and forth with no real intent to to actually break Canada's low block down. And so those were some of the things I focused on as well as, you know, briefly, probably not as much as it should have been discussed, just 
the the lack of talent at some positions on the field was really hard to stomach. Uh, whether that's you know I'm just going to go ahead and name names. Whether that's Daniel Lovitz or DeAndre Yedlin or Christian Roldan. I mean, no one had a great game, but mm-hmm. those guys, those three guys, especially those outside fullbacks, and then you know in central midfield, if you can't play through those positions, you're not going to be able to pass the ball effectively. So those are some of the main points that I hit at uh, in that piece, which is up now, by the way. How much of the confusion? And that's good to know. Where can people find that piece? It's up on The Athletic. Okay, gotcha. Um, how much of that confusion do you think was a product of the American players like trying to, like, basically almost trying to think what's being asked of them, and so rather than playing on instinct, they're playing off of like, oh, wait, what am I supposed to do in this moment? That was a question we had uh, like a number of different times on Twitter via email, and it's one that we didn't really get to. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts on like how much of this is the U.S. players sort of really trying to do what Berhalter's asking, but just not quite having it naturally done. Down. I think in the possession scheme, we definitely are seeing a little bit of that. We're seeing sequences. There's one play in particular that stands out in my mind where Roll Down received the ball in midfield and, and tried to turn and look for Yedlin as an outlet on the you know the right side of mm-hmm. fullback position and they just weren't on the same page and it, it was a basic progression that spacing wise shouldn't be a problem for professional players to execute you you drop back or, or you find the pocket of space if you're DeAndre Yedlin to be able to give Roldan an outlet like it's it's not rocket science and so it's plays like that that make me sort of think that maybe there's a little bit too much thinking going on that these basic plays that really shouldn't be too complicated. People are now overthinking and, and maybe it's causing them to freeze up in the moment or whatever it is. I think we really are seeing some of those things. And that's that's a problem because what Berhalter wants to do is make those things, make a logical progression from, from different read to different read to different passing options across the field, different rotations and things like that. But, but when players aren't able to do those things instinctively and they're not able to sort of grasp those concepts or, or maybe it's an issue in how he's communicating them or I, I don't know what it is mm-hmm. there really does seem to be a disconnect between those two things and I, I think we really saw that last night against Canada yeah and and to your point about frustration like I think that's where I am with a lot of this is that I don't really know how things get better uh, and, and that's kind of a bold or big statement to make not a necessarily a bold statement when you lose 2-0 to Canada but like this was a game in which like we've had the United States lose friendlies they probably should have went one in the past and lose competitive games that they probably Probably should have won. The difference here, I think, was that it was just how much the United States were comprehensively outplayed, how much better Canada's tactical game plan was than the U.S.'s. And it's strange to think that, like, I, I'm still forcing myself to kind of accept this one because it still seems unnatural. But, like, there's a very good chance that Canada come here uh, for the return leg and cause a lot of problems and maybe get that result if the United States can't turn it around. And so my frustration is, I guess I'm venting to you now, Joe. My frustration is sort of like, I don't know if this is a performance that can be improved on in terms of if the players like just need a little bit more time and then they would have clicked, or if this is a situation when there does need to be changed. A lot of people are very frustrated with Greg Berhalter, want him to go. We didn't really talk about that on the show last night. I, I think a large part of that was because I don't think it's going to happen. I think U.S. soccer is going to be really hesitant to pull any sort of trigger that they might one day pull. I think it would take a lot of negative results, a lot more negative results before that even kind of became a possibility. Um, and And on top of that, I don't myself really know how I feel as to whether or not I want Greg Berhalter to continue. It doesn't seem like progress is being made, but I also don't know if there's a better candidate out there or if there's a better solution out there. So I have kind of explained where I am in terms of the Berhalter conundrum. Joe, I'm wondering where you are on that one. I'm in a lot of the same headspace as you on this, I think, Taylor. It's 
in my mind, I want, I really, I really want to be on board with what's happening with the United States men's national team because yeah. I really like the idea behind what Berhalter is trying to do. I love, I love the idea of wanting to turn the United States men's national team into a tactically astute team that is able to to use their you know, use the ball to disorganize the opposition. Like that's the basic premise that I think everybody can get behind. But the problem is we really have gone through this year and it's, it's, there's not been tangible progress. I don't, I really, I genuinely don't think we've seen a lot of progress. We've seen building blocks. Absolutely. But they're kind of just scattered around the construction site instead of being built on top of one another to actually make something. And Mm so a lot of that again, comes down to the lack of talent in the pool there's player selection as well beyond just his his own tactical decision making but all those factors combined do make it sort of frustrating from the outside looking in because we can't know what the actual issues are and we don't know where the disconnect is between one thing or another Mm -hmm. the ideas seem sound but you know all we can tell is that what we're seeing doesn't line up with what we've been told we're supposed to be seeing yeah so it's a frustrating time to be sort of an observer without a true understanding of of what's going on and what the long-term I mean, I've, we've been told what the long-term vision is, but without an actual understanding of whether that vision can become reality. So mm-hmm. I'm with you. I don't. I don't think Berhalter is going to get fired. It's it, realistically patience is probably. It, it's understandable that that's going to be what the message is coming from U.S. soccer and coming from from rational individuals. I, I think it's fair to say, okay, it's been less than a year now of Berhalter's b- being in charge. Let's wait till we get some of these younger players in into the mix and see kind of if they can adapt to his his style or, or whatever that style is supposed to be. But yeah, no, it's it's not an easy time. And I think it's it's fair to be critical of what we're seeing right now uh, from Greg Berhalter. Um, how much were you writing about uh, Columbus or Major League Soccer when Berhalter was coaching there? Or how much were you paying attention to the crew at that point? I wasn't writing, uh, okay. but I, I was paying a little bit of attention. All right, because like, the other thing that Daryl and I focused a lot on our, on our review, and I really love Daryl's summary of that, like, there's a plan A, and then Burhalter's plan B seems to be do plan A better. I thought that was a great <laughs> like distillation of what happened last night. And I think the thing that I find really confusing is one of my sort of like biggest memories of Burhalter prior to getting the job with the U.S. is the playoff game the crew had against uh, D.C. United, I believe, last season at Audi Field, where... When they were kind of evenly matched, you could make an argument that DC had the, the stronger squad, the deeper squad. Berhalter makes some adjustments and completely flummoxes uh, Ben Olsen. I believe this was the playoffs. It may have been just before. But like just him sort of making in-game adjustments that caused massive problems stood out to me as like, okay, this is a guy who has a system and a way he wants to play, but then can adjust it uh, to kind of exploit the vulnerabilities of his opponent. Now I'm just wondering if that's sort of uh, Ben Olsen and DC United maybe being a little bit weaker than Greg Berhalter. Uh, because of the lack of plan B. So either from Columbus or from his time with the U.S., have you seen him sort of solve some of those problems or been a little bit more adaptable than he has been, say, in this game uh, against Canada? In the past, I really do believe we have seen Berhalter adjust here and there and make meaningful in-game adjustments or or even pre-game adjustments based off of the opposition. I think in the past, he has been willing to do some of those things. Uh, in his time with Columbus, he would... You know, he he was willing to tweak things based off of whether individual matchups on the field, uh, based off of what areas of space were going to be more open than others, uh, you know, judging from the opposing formation or things like that style of play, all those things put together. And so I don't think he's necessarily willing to adjust, you know, every game. I don't mm-hmm. think he's looking to just tweak for the sake of tweaking or or based off of what I know from his time in Columbus. But the his unwillingness now or, or seemingly 
unwillingness mm-hmm. to to make those in-game adjustments or to to tweak things whether that's you know build up against mexico in that 3-0 loss or in the gold cup final as well whether there was a genuine gap between the players understanding of, of what they wanted to do and Berhalter's you know instructions to them or whether that's the game against canada we're seeing gaps i mean just logical things like the midfield is being overloaded we need to counteract that either by trying to funnel play to the wings or by adding more guys into midfield like it's not it really isn't rocket science, a lot of these things. And mm. so I'd be interested to hear his perspective on maybe why he's been reticent to make visible, you know, observable changes or or is he trying to do those things and there's a disconnect? I mean, it's all these questions over and over again. Yeah. But yeah, based off of his time in Columbus, I think I'm surprised at the lack of adjustments that we're seeing. And I think uh, to your point about like so many questions we have, that's the other reason why I find myself like more frustrated than angry is just that like, J- Joe, you could make any argument about this team and I feel like I would think like maybe he's right like you could say we got to play more young guys because they're going to bring the energy and enthusiasm and they have like a a greater technical ability at a younger age and I'd be like yeah that makes sense you could say no we got to play the veterans because they've got the know-how and the experience to kind of execute the game plan and then you integrate the young players and I would say yeah that makes sense and I just think we don't have concrete answers at this point that I expected to have. Again, I don't know if then pulling the plug on Greg Berhalter, which again, I don't think is going to happen, but even if it were a possibility, I don't know if that solves anything because I think we're sort of the same people that appointed him are still in charge and will be appointed the next person. And I don't know who that would be or if they would be able to kind of handle things a little bit better. So I end with uh, more confusion and concerns heading into the next uh, round of uh, international games. So instead of maybe focusing more on that which is just going to make me more bummed out. Should we talk about a happier thing, which is uh, the MLS playoffs, which are due to start this weekend? Let's do it. Let's okay. do it. All right, so we're going to try to break down uh, every game or at least talk about uh, every game from this upcoming weekend. You wrote a great piece for The Athletic that explains kind of certain tactical approaches from each one of the playoff squads. Uh, before we get into the, the individual matchups, I wanted to ask this. like, Generally speaking, maybe LAFC and NYCFC aside, uh, which team or teams were the most consistently interesting for you to sort of dissect from a tactical standpoint for whatever reason? It might be DC United because they're chaos and confusing. It might be somebody else because they're like have a lot of tactical nuance atlanta is always fun just because the the way they play even though it's not the same style that we saw under tato martino but but they have quality players and an actual cohesive tactical plan and so when you combine those two things it's usually uh, a, a nice team to analyze so putting atlanta aside as well i always really enjoy watching seattle uh it hasn't always been as pretty later in the year as they as they were at the beginning of it um but we still see a lot of the same principles that Brian Schmetzer has implemented there um, in terms of their possession play, being able to overload wide areas, things like that. So I, I enjoy Seattle as well. And then maybe one more wild card team is is Toronto hmm. between a, a fully healthy Toronto, I should add. They, they're fun to sort of look at and, and see how they use the ball, uh, how they overload different areas of the field and possession and how they use the the players on their roster at those skill sets whether that's Josie Altidore or, or I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more later but looking at how they how Greg Vanny has set up his team to play to its strengths I think was was fun as well so if you set aside those top two seeds I think it's those three teams that right. that I uh, looked at the most kind of for that 
Much more still to come from my conversation with Joe Lowry. But first, I wanted to let you know that today's show is sponsored in part by our friends over at Dollar Shave Club. When I talk about Dollar Shave Club, I cannot stress enough the quality of their products. Uh, We've talked about them before, but the Executive Razor, their Shave Butter, their Prep Scrub, their uh, Post Shave Dew – all of it quite wonderful. The executive razor, especially for me, because I only shave kind of like the lines uh, above and below the beard to keep it sort of shapely somewhat as best I can. Uh, the executive razor makes that very, very easy uh, because like in areas where I used to get a lot of razor burn, used to be kind of difficult to reach or shave properly and there's like weird angles to it. Uh, instead, the executive razor makes that very, very easy. But then if you do have a little bit of irritation, you've got the post-shave due afterwards to balance that out. So they've got everything covered. But they do also have you covered from head to toe. Uh, you can and cover yourself for the shower, for shaving, for styling your hair, brushing your teeth. They have you covered in every way you might need to be covered. And right now, you can put the quality of Dollar Shave Club's products to the test. Their ultimate shave starter set has basically everything you need for an amazing shave. The executive razor that I mentioned, the shave butter I mentioned, the prep scrub I mentioned, also the post-shave dew. That's convenient. Uh, the best part is you can try it for just $5 after that. The restock box ships regular size products at regular prices. So get your ultimate starter set for just $5 at dollarshaveclub.com slash TSS. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash TSS for your ultimate starter set for just $5. Thank you very much to Dollar Shave Club for sponsoring today's episode. Now back to Mr. Joe Lowry. All right. With that answer, you started with Atlanta, so let's stick with them. Saturday, 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern, all times Eastern for uh, what I'm talking about. Uh, we've got Atlanta hosting New England. Bruce Arena has turned around this revolution team, uh, although I'm sure Brad Frito would like some credit. I'm not giving him any. I'm going to give it to Bruce Arena, much as that pains me. Um, Atlanta remains Atlanta. What are you expecting from this one? I think in Atlanta and New England, that matchup we're going to see – it has the potential, at least, to be a very high-powered game. Uh, I think, based off of what we saw from their last regular season matchup on Decision Day, there's a chance for, the, for it to be pretty open. Uh, although there's one major factor there that could take away from from that openness, and that's Miles Robinson. Yep. Uh, after the United States, you know, after he picked up that injury with the United States hamstring injury, that could really affect how Atlanta United are able to defend. Uh, and we could see them play a little bit more reactionary instead of on the front foot pressing in the opposition half because Robinson can cover that ground and cover space and, and make up for mistakes that are made higher up the field. Without him, Atlanta United might be a little bit more susceptible or might be a little bit more inclined to play a deeper defensive block, whether that's a, a four, you know, four at the back or five at the back, whatever it is. That could make it a little bit more difficult for New England Revolution to find space. But at the same time, I, I think... It's important not to underrate the New England Revolution. Just, again, like you said before, I'm I'm no Bruce Arena supporter in terms of his tactical uh, setups. I don't think he necessarily cares even a lot about that stuff, uh, which is frustrating to me at times. But the players that he's working with have the talent and have the ability to make life extremely difficult for Atlanta United even at home. You look at Gustavo Bo, who they brought in midseason, uh, and then Carlos Hill, who I believe just won uh, MLS Newcomer of the Year or whatever that award is called. And then Teal Bunbury and Christian Pena. Those four attackers have have the ability to absolutely make life difficult for Atlanta United, especially without Miles Robinson. So whether those chances are coming in transition against a recovering Atlanta United defense or whether they're coming up against a, a more compact block, either way, there's going to be opportunity. There's going to be space for, for the teams to exploit. Um, in, in different offensive phases of the game. And I think it, it has the real potential to be a high-powered game. And now, of course, as 
I said that it's going to be both teams sitting back and, and playing very cautiously, but that's kind of what I'm expecting from this matchup. All right, uh, and I think I'm like also, I'm inclined to say Atlanta wins this easily because we've seen them beat New England easily at times this season. But I think the thing that keeps me sort of with an eye on this game is Bruce Arena because he has the playoff experience. Obviously, he has won multiple MLS Cups. Like, how big of a factor do you think his kind of understanding and history in the playoffs is when going up against an Atlanta United? team that is incredibly strong but is coached by Frank DeBoer who has not yet been there or is it the case that just kind of like the regular season prepares you and it's just another game I think it's a little bit of both in a weird way because what we saw Bruce Arena do as you as you alluded to in the intro to this matchup is is turn a team around and I think a lot of that boils down to his past experience in the league Mm -hmm. and his under understanding of, of what things need to be emphasized to get guys working together and just playing even half decent soccer compared to where they were before and so you look at what the revolution can do now they, i think they can cause a problem for atlanta and I, obviously part of that is because of arena at the same time it's single elimination right so it, it really is anybody's game so i do believe that it has to do with both the work that arena has put in prior to this point but now now it also could just boil down to you know i guess that's the basic principle of soccer over gets the ball in the back of the net more times right that, that makes a lot of sense to me. We have seen Seattle and Dallas uh, put the ball in the back of net against each other uh, in playoffs of the past as well as this season. That game is Saturday at 3.30 p.m. When they met in the playoffs, as I said, uh, a, a couple years ago, if not last year, uh, it made for very enter- entertaining television. Should we expect more of that this time around, or are you expecting uh, a cagey affair? This should be a good game. Okay. I, I, both teams have distinct identities that could mesh together to make this a really fun matchup uh again uh, sorry if i'm jinxing anything here but fc dallas starting with them what luchi gonzalez has done this year turning them into a real build-up oriented possession team that's comfortable playing out from the back doing all those things that that he's done for them for that team this year has made them fun to watch in my opinion at least they're frustrating at times uh, absolutely I'm not going to pretend that they're not. They're not perfect. Uh, when an opposing team sits back a little bit deeper, Dallas sometimes don't know what to do with themselves because they're so used to drawing the opposition forward and playing through pressure and, and creating space that way. But when an opposing defense sits back a little bit deeper in a mid or a low block, they have a little bit more trouble creating space because teams are less inclined to step out of that shape, uh, or at least you know step high out of that shape. So. If Seattle approached this game from that perspective, we could see it be a little bit of a slower matchup. But based off of how Seattle like to play under Brian Schmetzer, I don't think, even if they do sit in a block sometimes, a lot of teams do that regardless of their their own tactical identity. Even if Seattle sit back, they're still going to push forward. They love to push numbers forward, especially wide. They like to get seven guys forward into the attack, leave two center backs and a defensive midfielder back, and let four guys drift to one side and combine create an overload on the wing and, and isolate themselves against the outside of the opposing, in this case, Dallas's defensive structure. So Seattle is going to push guys forward and use those wide areas to try to either break down and dribble into the box from the wing or to switch the ball to the other side. They're trying to do that with the ball when they have it. So either way, once Dallas win the ball or, or whether Seattle's overloads allow them to advance the ball into the box and score, either way, there's going to be space in, in the attack for both teams to exploit. So whether Dallas is able to, to possess and draw the other team forward and play in behind them and score goals that way, whether Seattle's able to overload the wide areas, score goals from those, or whether it's, you know, those neither one of those strategies work 
work and there's space present in other areas of the field. I think this one could be a really interesting matchup, both tactically and just from a pure visually exciting standpoint. And for Seattle, uh, if they are attacking down the wings, trying to use that space out wide, one of the players who's going to be heavily involved would be Jordan Morris, who is, I think, one of the few players that can maybe come away from that Canada loss with their head, not necessarily held high, but like not low. <laughs> he, he did, he did uh, a solid job, and I think that's been the case for him uh, over the last couple months. I'm assuming a lot of that relates to his form with Seattle and how he has improved there. What do you think has been the key for him kind of raising his game to that next level? Because this was a player who I was very, I felt very strongly should have been behind Tyler Boyd at the start of the Gold Cup. And now that seems ludicrous. (laughs) Um, So I'm wondering if you have an idea of why he has been able to elevate his game to such an extent. This is a weirdly simple answer, but I think a lot of it boils down to the fact that he's just gotten better. He's, I think he's visibly developed in his own personal skill set. Now he, he's willing to use his left foot and not just try to you know, do all this crazy stuff with his right foot because he's so reliant on mm-hmm. that. He's also comfortable, I think, from playing across different spots in the front line. He's comfortable in different areas of the field. He's comfortable on both wings. Uh, he, can, he can drift inside as well so when seattle combine and use those overloads he's capable of dropping in and being on that strong side and playing playing off of other players in the overload or he's capable of being the outlet on the weak side and and having the ball switch to him and then driving it at the opponent as at the opposing defense that way Mm -hmm. and either beating a man beating a defender or playing across into the box so he's he's developed into a really nicely well-rounded player and that plays a big part in why Seattle are able to be so effective with those overloads. Um, this is a, a big question now. Because I've asked you specifically about Jordan Morris, and he's kind of the player that I'm looking at as being very key for Seattle, I'd ask you this. For FC Dallas and then for the two uh, teams we've already mentioned, Atlanta and New England, who would you spotlight as being the most kind of important player for each of those three teams? Uh, it could be somebody we've already mentioned. It could be somebody we haven't yet talked about. But uh, I'd like to know who you think those kind of key performers could be and why. I'm going to cheat with FC Dallas and use two players, uh, both center backs, Matt Hedges and Reto Ziegler. Mm -hmm. Um, Both in terms of their possession play, whether they're building from the back or trying to break down a a lower defense, those guys are key to getting the ball involved. And then against Seattle as well, if Seattle pull those opposing fullbacks, pull Dallas's fullbacks, Reggie Cannon and Ryan Hollingshead out of position – the defensive you know, patience and, and ability of those two center backs of Ziegler and Hedges is going to be key to keeping Seattle off the board. Uh, and then looking back at Atlanta and New England, I think for Atlanta, it's, it's Julian Gressel, especially in a game like this. He's going to be one of the primary, if not the primary creative outlet to feed Joseph Martinez up top. Uh, without Miles Robinson as well, his defensive contributions could be a little bit more important. And then looking at New England, I think it's got to be Carlos Hill. He is what makes them tick. He is the creative you know, artist, essentially, in that attack. So if he's able to pick up a pocket of space and do something with his left foot, Atlanta United are going to have to watch out. So Carlos Hill for them, uh, Julian Gressel for Atlanta, and then Rato's and Matt Hedges for FC Dallas. All right, so that's uh, Seattle versus FC Dallas, uh, 3.30 p.m., I believe, on Saturday, uh, 12.30 West Coast. Uh, then Saturday, late afternoon, early evening, 6 p.m., Toronto hosting D.C. United. Uh, I should note here that in your playoff preview, you sort of had 
positives and negatives about every <laughs> single team, except for DC United, where you seem to have more negatives. And I think that's probably justified, given that they failed to score against uh, a nine-man FC Cincinnati on the final day, which would have allowed them to host this playoff game instead of traveling to Toronto. With that said, I can't claim to be as familiar with uh, TFC. So I'm wondering how you think like this game will go, who maybe has the advantage, and why it's Toronto who has the advantage. <laughs> I think this game is going to end up being Toronto with the ball a lot. Uh, And then even when DC, you do get the ball, you alluded to it, just how meager their attack has been this season. I don't think Toronto is going to be overly concerned. Now, just to qualify that a little bit, DC United do have talent. Right. uh, Just because I don't necessarily see a lot of tactical positives from them. They absolutely have the talent to pose a threat to, to Toronto FC's defense, which has not been... You know, extremely solid this year. They're, they've been fine, but not excellent defensively. So, in my mind, I'm envisioning this game as Toronto controlling possession, DC United sitting back in a, in a 4-4-2 block, trying to win the ball, mm-hmm. ball and then attacking in transition through Paul Ariola, Wayne Rooney, whoever it is. And I think that's exactly what Toronto want it to be. They're confident in their ability to break through a defense, whether that defense is higher up the field or a little bit deeper. Michael Bradley is, is going to conduct that midfield using you know, Osorio, Delgado, Pozuelo, and you know, Josie Altador, if he's healthy. Again, that's a big if. But using those guys to, to find pockets of space, overload areas in central midfield, or even shifting to the wing, they want to possess and they want to use the ball to, to break through the opposing defense. So DC United... Defensively, they've been okay this season. They they are capable of playing out of a block. That's not exciting. Uh, it's not all that impressive either. But they can they can defend as a unit. So if there's anything that, that's going to give Toronto trouble, it's going to be their ability to sit back, win the ball, and then go forward from there. That makes sense. Uh, my guess for this one, and this is informed by the uh, crew, Berhalter, DC United, Ben Olsen game that I mentioned previously, but my guess was that this was going to be like nil-nil for a while, and then Vanny will make slight adjustments either in the first 45 or at halftime. DC will not necessarily respond. Toronto end up with a 2-0 win or so. Does that sound feasible to you? It absolutely sounds feasible. It's, it's hard to predict any of these games just because it is single elimination and anything can happen, True. but that seems more likely than not. Uh, and and for these two teams, uh, we you mentioned a few names for Toronto. We've talked about some of the bigger names for DC. Who are going to be the key performers in this one? I think it's an individual matchup uh, between Michael Bradley and Paul Areola. Hmm. Areola, uh, that's you know, with the caveat of assuming that Areola plays underneath another striker in in a defensive block um, because that would allow him to so sort of mark Michael Bradley, whether that's man marking or just keeping an eye on him and closing him down when necessary. I think seeing how those two players interact and, and who gets the better of that matchup when Toronto are in possession and then DC are defending, that's going to have a big impact on, on the outcome of this game. All right. And then uh, final game of Saturday, Saturday evening, 8 p.m., uh, RSL hosts Portland. Uh, you kind of summarized this one, or I'm going to take some of the words you used. Uh, a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, versus the team that you found difficult to summarize. I initially thought this was <laughs> going to be one of maybe like the least interesting matchups for me personally, because I, I don't have as much of an interest in RSL or Portland, uh, and I don't probably watch as much of them as I do either. East Coast teams. That's just kind of my bias, but so be it. Um, then I read your preview. Now I'm thinking it will be Portland defending in a complex block and trying to counter against a team that you stated is sneaky hard to defend against. Um, so I'm now thinking this game is going to be much more exciting and interesting than I pre- did previously. That said, the same disclaimer you've had before. I feel like I might be jinxing it and we may end up <laughs> nil-nil, but I'm wondering like, what you think are going to be the kind of tactical 
like not necessarily innovations, but what are going to be the kind of key tactics here for both sides? This is a fun one because it boils down to, or it could boil down to, which team is better able to get their attacking midfielders involved in the game. Uh, when you look at RSL first, they have they typically play out of a four-two-three-one and use some combination of Corey Baird, Jefferson Savarino, Albert Rusnak, and Demir Krylak as those three midfielders underneath the striker. Krylak can also be that striker up top, and he brings sort of a unique look at that position. So RSL have those three guys in any combination of those four underneath the striker as their main attacking players. And then you look at Portland, who have Diego Valeri and, and Sebastian Blanco as their two primary creators. Both teams use their defensive structure as ways to get those guys involved. So Portland are very, you know, it's kind of their brand is to sit deep, uh, whatever shape that block is in, sit in a mid block or a low block, win the ball, go from there. Um, using Jeremy Bobas, he hasn't outlet he's he's pretty good on the ball so he can uh act as a playmaker in transition as well rsl are comfortable extending that block they play a 4-4-2 or 4-2-2-2 block and they're comfortable extending that a little bit higher up the field to press the opposition so whichever defensive structure sort of wins out and gets the ball to their attacking midfielders in space uh, more often or or gets their attacking midfielders in the best opportunities to to score goals or create chances I think that's the team that's going to come out on top. And frankly, I have no idea who that's going to be. I think in a lot of the other matchups, it's easy, not easy, but it's possible to pick a team that's maybe a little bit better than the other historically based off of the season or just matches up a little bit better. It's a favorable matchup for one team versus the other. I'm not sure we really see that in this game. So that's part of what makes it so intriguing for me is because I genuinely believe that both teams have a really decent shot to advance out of this first round. And are there any other individual names you want to spotlight for either team? Um, I think for RSL, Nick Romando is going to play a big role in this game. Uh, this, is, this is his last year. He's going to be you know, looking to make an actual postseason run here in his final season. And then for Portland, uh, I talked about Jeremy Bobasi already, but I think he is, he is key to this attack because he does take a little bit of pressure off of his attacking midfield, his Argentinian attacking midfield teammates, especially without, I believe Portland is going to be without Brian Fernandez in this game. So a lot of the attacking pressure is going to be on those, uh, those midfielders. So if a bubble can, can relieve a little bit of that pressure, uh, I think that'll be huge for Portland. Hey folks, this is Taylor jumping in one last time to let you know that today's show is sponsored in part by our friends over at Fubo, the fine folks who gave the Cooligans a television show and thus brought down the entire industry, uh, are here to provide you with an incredible streaming package. Uh, they're essentially trying to be the only soccer-focused uh, TV streaming service. They do obviously have movies and all the other shows you might want, but they've got FS1, FS2, they've got NBC Sports, BN Sports, TUDN if you don't want to hear uh, English language commentaries, many many other channels which allow you to watch many many other games if you have to miss a game i'm going away this weekend i will be using my fubo cloud storage so i can record the games i know i'm going to watch uh, some of the mls playoffs i'll be i'll be utilizing that feature if i happen to miss a game or maybe a game that i thought wasn't going to be that exciting turns out really really great they also have the 72 hour rewatch feature which means you'll never miss a game if it's streamed on their service uh within the last 72 hours you can easily access it to get that program to watch that game to see the goals to figure out why things went the way they did. 
And one other trick to point out here, which was taught to me by none other than Mr. Daryl Grove, if you're catching the tail end of a movie, tail end of a game, and you want to be able to watch it all the way back from the beginning, if you hit record while that program is still live, you're getting the whole program. At least according to Daryl Grove, if he's wrong, then that's on him. But if he's not, then, well, I announced it, so I'm going to take the credit. Uh, but you can uh, basically have the, that option to, like, if, you, if there's that movie that you've kind of came in the last 15 minutes and I was like, oh, I really wanted to see this, hit record you'll be able to access it and watch the whole thing. Same for soccer games. So if you want to take advantage of what they have on offer, you can go to fubotv.com slash TSS, and you will get $10 off your first three months. Once again, that's fubotv, F-U-B-O-T-V dot com slash TSS to get $10 off your first three months. Thank you very much to our friends over at Fubo for sponsoring today's show. Now back one more time to Mr. Joe Lowry. I'm, I'm genuinely not entirely sure how you keep all of this in your brain and how you're able to kind of like recall it so quickly, but it, it's very impressive. Uh, I'm, I'm giving you time to, to take a break to collect yourself before we move on to Sunday. Uh, Sunday, 3 p.m., we've got uh, the Philadelphia Houston, uh, Philadelphia Houston. Wow, that's an interesting one. Philadelphia Union hosting the New York Red Bulls. Uh, I wanted to start with the Red Bulls for a moment. Uh, you mentioned in your article that they're kind of utilizing a very specific trigger uh, this season, or at least lately this season. Uh, can you talk a bit about that and what that might look like against Philadelphia. Absolutely. So the the Red Bulls still press. Uh, it's in their DNA. This season, they maybe don't do it quite as much, or or at least people are starting to notice some of the variants that they use while pressing. So this year under Chris Armas, especially later on in the season, we've seen them defend in a, in a mid 4-4-2 block. Um, so they'll, they'll have two forwards up top and then two banks of four underneath those guys. When the opposing team is in possession in their own half, so the Red Bulls are defending around midfield and the, the opposition is, is passing the ball around in the back, the Red Bulls will use a back pass from, from either a fullback to a center back or from one center back to a, a deeper center back. Any, any negative pass in that defensive half, the Red Bulls will push forward as a unit. And they won't swarm the ball, but they'll, they'll collapse, they'll push forward, they'll mark off the opposing passing options, or, or rather they'll try to do those things and, and make it difficult for the team in possession to play through them. Uh, they haven't been flawless at it this season. Uh, their their midfield, The gap between their midfield line of four and defensive line of four, there can sometimes be a space between those two lines, and, and that's what we've seen some teams exploit them. That's the area of the field that we've seen some teams exploit them this season. So looking specifically at Philadelphia, who are comfortable with the ball, and they, they do like to possess, even though Ernst Tanner has come in and implemented a little bit more of a pressing style, I think the matchup between that pressing trigger out of that mid-block for the Red Bulls and the Union's uh, ability to possess the ball in their own half is going to be key. Harris Madunian, uh, the Philadelphia Union's defensive midfielder, likes to drop between the center backs and, and build up and build up as sort of a back three. And so the Red Bulls could use his movement back in between the center backs as a cue for them to press forward. And then at that point, the impetus is on the Union's back three. You know, whether that's Jack Elliott, uh, Mark McKenzie, it doesn't look like Austin Trustees. Uh, I don't know exactly what two center backs Curtin's going to go with, but whatever combination of, of defense, central defenders and Medunian and that the Union opt to go for, their ability to play through that pressure and to see 
players in between the Red Bulls defensive uh, lines, midfield line and, and back four is going to be key to see how the Union can progress the ball forward or whether the Red Bulls will win the ball and transition quickly to the attack uh, to into attacking moments of their own. And this is the only one only game I think that I might ask you to like kind of uh, weigh in on what you think will happen, because, as you said, Philly, uh, when they're up against high pressure from their opponent, they are more than happy to kind of keep the ball, move it around, try to play out of that pressure, because I think the idea is that like they then have the possibility of overloads. If they're able to play out a little bit, then they can find opportunity. The Red Bulls happy to deploy that pressure, albeit not as maybe intensive we've seen in the past. So I guess we have like two teams kind of set up for like to play against their opponent who kind of want to be playing against them. Like they basically both of the systems are sort of uniquely situated to go against each other. And my question then is, which one do you think is more likely to fold? Is it Philadelphia maybe struggling to find passes, end up turning one over and New York get a goal? Or is it New York maybe don't press as uh, collectively Philadelphia are able to kind of pull some people out and Philadelphia then get uh, opportunities? Which one would you uh, be willing to say maybe guess on uh, happens first? It's such a good matchup for all the reasons you just detailed, but I think given the circumstances and given the nature of the of the Major League Soccer playoff format, I think the New England, uh, sorry, the New York Red Bulls style might might hmm. you know warrant a little bit more or might might be a little bit more fitting to a, to a one-off game like this. If just because simply because if they do you know, disrupt the unions, build up early on and go and sort of start the game on the front foot. It's going to be difficult for the union to sort of get back in and settle themselves because of how the Red Bulls can press and, and turn defensive momentum into attacking ones very quickly. So simply because of that, I think I would lean slightly towards the Red Bulls, but it, it really is going to be a battle between those two those two uh, styles and those two units between the unions build up in the, the Red Bulls press and defensive structure. Uh, but if I had to pick one, I would say the Red Bulls will get out on top a little bit early on, and then they're just not going to relinquish that over the course of 90 minutes. All right. And then you may have already answered this one as well. But just to reiterate, uh, if you were looking at like individuals from either team who you think need to rise to the occasion or could have big games, who would those individuals be? For the union, I think it's uh, Jaime Montero. Hmm. So he's he's one of their more advanced midfielders, typically, although he can also play in a double pivot next to Bedunian. Um, but simply, I say that because once, I should say, if the Union are able to advance the ball past that press, it's going to be on Montero and, and to a lesser extent, Brendan Aronson as well to, to transition between possession to just straight up downhill attacking. So those guys are going to be responsible for for playing the final ball into into their forwards. So if if Montero is efficient with his passing and is able to create chances for the Philadelphia Union's forwards, he's going to be a huge factor in this game. If he's not, and the Red Bulls are able to shut him down, it's he's going to be, have a much a much lessened impact on the situation. And then the Red Bulls, I think Sean Davis is the X factor for them. He is sort of that last line in midfield before you know, the Union will hit the back line. So if he's able to to be efficient with his defensive movement and cut out passing angles, then you know guys like Montero for the Union are going to have fewer opportunities to begin with. All right, and then final playoff matchup of the weekend, Sunday night, 7.30 p.m., Minnesota hosting the LA Galaxy. I want to start with the Galaxy for a moment because I found your point about the strengths and then vulnerabilities of Zlatan Ibrahimovic with the Galaxy. I thought that was really interesting and something I hadn't really thought a lot about. For those who aren't as familiar, why is Zlatan sort of a problem for the Galaxy when it comes to their defending? Zlatan just doesn't like to move. I don't think he likes to <laughs> to do anything but attack. Um, and so when the Galaxy are defending, whether that's attempted high pressure or in a little bit of a deeper structure, 
he doesn't bring a whole lot to the table. I, I mean, I would be intimidated if I saw, you know, six foot five or whatever he is, Zlatan Ibrahimovic running at me, but he doesn't seem to want to use his energy in that way, which is fair. You know, he's a superstar. He's brought in to score goals, but his lack of defensive willingness and, and ability sort of really hinders the rest of the galaxy's uh, defensive ability. It, it forces the other players to cover more ground. It forces those other nine guys to cut out more passing angles, to to move faster, to do all those things, to put on pressure to the ball that if Ibrahimovic was willing to contribute, they wouldn't have to do quite as much. And so that can stretch the galaxy a little bit thin, which in a game like this one against Minnesota could come back to bite them because Minnesota United are are decent in transition they like to they don't love to possess the ball but they do like to win it deep and go quickly forward whether that's their darwin quintero uh the right back metonier or mason toy all of those players can get forward quickly and, and cause some danger in the attack so if the galaxy lose the ball in possession and then ibrahimovic as the top of their defensive structure isn't willing to counter press isn't willing to do all those things then there could be space for Minnesota United to exploit in transition. So that's, you know, Ibrahimovic. The Ibrahimovic problem is going to be something that, you know, Guillermo Barroso has to watch for and monitor and adjust how he uses the rest of his defensive structure to stop Minnesota United. He's going to have to be on top of that and see how the game is going to dictate, you know, the changes that he has to make on the fly. Uh, so maybe some vulnerabilities presented by Zlatan uh, for LA defensively, but then obviously from an attacking standpoint, he is one of the, the, the best, most threatening, intimidating strikers in the league. How do you think Minnesota game plan for Zlatan and deal with his effectiveness in front of goal? If any team in the playoffs have the ability to sort of slow Zlatan down, not stop him, but to slow him down, I think it really could be Minnesota United. Between Ico Parra and Michael Boxel, they have two solid center backs. You know, Ico Parra is probably going to win uh, MLS Defender of the Year. He's in good form. Uh, they have two guys that are, you know, ready and willing to to try at least if not to succeed to try to you know slow him down as much as possible so those two guys are going to be key to to trading off communicating passing Ibrahimovic back and forth when the galaxy are in possession trying to deny him service into the box not allow him to get those you know free headers find a find a sliver of space in the box to get a free header in on goal so if those two guys can stop him when the galaxy are in possession in Minnesota United's half they can also use uh, Ozzy Alonso to put a little bit of pressure on him. I, I don't think anybody in MLS likes to play against Ozzy Alonso just because he's always coming at you. You never forget he's there. And so that could be a really intriguing matchup as well, a little bit higher up the field, how Alonso factors into to trying to shut down Ibrahimovic when the Galaxy have the ball. And then this is a question of genuine ignorance, so I apologize, Minnesota fans. But like with a team uh, like Minnesota, who are happy to see possession sit deep, uh, hit on the counterattack, a key aspect there is, for lack of a better way of putting it in my mind, like ruthlessness, that you have to be able to then take your chances and take them well. And I think about like the way you talked about LAFC and how it's it's so like they make things very simple in the way they're able to turn and play forward and turn and play forward. And I'm wondering, is that the same thing for Minnesota, where it's it's a sort of rehearsed every knows how to break and where their teammates are going to be and thus they take their chances effectively or like for every game when Minnesota like our lights out score every single shot they have are there games when they should have had six and they ended up scoring none Minnesota United's counter-attacking structure I think is good it's it's not always flawless because players maybe aren't getting to the spots quick enough or aren't showing to the ball fast enough to provide an outlet to get the ball forward in transition but on the whole 
I think they do a really good job of advancing quickly in transition. Uh, Mason Toy, I, I touched on him briefly earlier, but is is really helpful in that regard because he's mobile. He can carry the ball forward himself, or he can make runs off the ball, get in behind the the opposing center backs, and score. You know, in on a counter attack in that way. Toy is is really big for how Minnesota United are able to to play essentially he's he is kind of key to their identity so you know i'd be lying if i said the the attack structure was flawless but i i do think there are enough building blocks there and enough uh, pieces that they can they can really cause the galaxy and if they advance past the galaxy even lafc as we've seen earlier this season some trouble all right and uh in terms of key performers there i, I have written down very quickly zlatan versus Ozzy. uh is there is there another one that you think could be important uh, I also think we could see that matchup between Metanier and uh, Christian Pavon on the left, uh, the right side of Minnesota United's defense and the left side of the Galaxy's attack. That could be key. Metanier has been uh, excellent this season for Minnesota United. Yeah, he made the all-star game. And then Pavon is a game changer on that side. Uh, but if you know, again, if Pavon doesn't defend, he's a little bit similar to, to Ibra in that way. If he doesn't put in the defensive work, he could get burned down that sideline. So that could be another gap where Minnesota United look to exploit when they have the ball. But the clash between those two guys on, on the left side of the Galaxy's attack and the right side of Minnesota United's defense is another matchup to watch. All right. Um, I have a fair amount of questions about LAFC and NYCFC, but it occurs to me that since they're not playing this weekend, maybe I'll keep my powder dry, hold on to those until next week when you're back to review these playoff games and then look ahead to the next round. We can do those there. But I do have a couple more questions for you about this weekend's games. Um, the kind of general ones whenever you're looking at uh, a playoff, especially in the first round of the playoffs, which like game do you think is most ripe for an upset here in terms of a, a, a like either historically good team getting knocked out early or a, a high seed from this season getting knocked out early? It's tough because this season there was often not a lot of gap between you know look at the western conference there, there's not a whole lot of difference mm-hmm. between the top and the bottom outside of you know, obviously lafc but just looking at it from a seed perspective i think uh i do think portland as a six seed could knock down rsl uh, as a three seed same in the same in the eastern conference I think the red bulls as the six versus the philadelphia union as the three those could both be options uh at the same time i do think atlanta and new england has the potential. I think Atlanta and United should, should still absolutely be favored. Um, they coming off of winning the whole thing last year. They, they've been here before. Most of those players have, have had a little bit of playoff experience and know kind of what it takes to make a run, just from mental perspective even. But New England, it's really hard for me to just rule them out immediately. I think a lot of people are doing that, and somewhat understandably. Um, but they have the talent. They've come in, even when they lost, I believe, 3-1 to one to Atlanta at the last game of the season. They, they weren't bad. Like they, they caused Atlanta some real problems with their attack. So that's a, that two versus seven matchup at the bottom of the Eastern Conference playoff bracket could be, you know, just keep an eye on it. Keep half an eye on it on, uh, on Saturday afternoon or, or late morning, whatever it is where you are. Just, you know, check in every once in a while and kind of see what <laughs> Bruce Arena's team is doing against Frank DeBoer. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's one that I've kind of got circled because there's every chance that Atlanta do Atlanta things and kind of <laughs> blitz uh, New yep. England and it's, it's over before it even starts. But like you've talked previously uh, on this episode a couple different times about how we've moved to kind of single elimination and with that, you can game plan a little bit more and it's harder. You don't have that second leg to react or kind of pull things back or fi- figure things out yourself. And so I do think the 
playoffs this time around lend themselves to a person who's been there previously and knows how to kind of get the best out of his squad in a number of different ways in a number of different situations. I'm not even saying that that is Bruce Arena more than Frank DeBoer necessarily. I just think that there's so many compelling aspects of that game that that's the one that I, I'm I'm more excited about than I thought I would be. That said, all of these games, I think, have reason to be excited, to be enthusiastic about them. And a lot of that is the coaching that we have uh, available to us here, uh, which leads me to, I think, my final question for you. It's kind of a difficult one. We'll see how you do. Uh, we already <laughs> mentioned Greg Berhalter not exactly covering himself in glory. If U.S. soccer came to you, Joe, and said, we're considering firing Greg, which... Uh, first round playoff coach, so not Bradley, not Saran, uh, which playoff coach should we hire to replace him? Who from the games we've mentioned would you recommend? So I think there are a couple of names that are interesting to me. Luchi Gonzalez for Dallas is one of them. I was wondering if that was going to be the one you lead with. I'm afraid that it would immediately resemble a little bit of the problem that Berhalter is currently Hmm. having with the national team. Maybe the system that he wants to implement isn't quite the right one for the international level. Uh, You don't have guys in camps for a lot of time teaching them the principles of build-up play and possession and how to break down a defense once you advance into the final third. Those things take a lot of time, and we're seeing how hard that can be for a manager. So if I had to go for a a different look than that, there could be you know, the real chance that a team like Portland, who are comfortable sitting deeper with Gio Savarese, could his style of play may fit the United States player pool a little bit like better. I can hear you not being confident in that answer. I'm not confident. I'm not. Because <laughs> Portland, Portland haven't done great things this season. Savarese yep. hasn't really moved the needle for me. But simply from a stylistic perspective, that could be a decent fit for the pool. Uh, I think if I'm just looking at the best option for the national team, I mean, Greg Vanny could be that guy with mm-hmm. Toronto. I, I'm comfortable with the sort of functional possession he encourages when his team has the ball. It's not, you know, do this at all costs, but it is also we're going to use our skills with the ball to our advantage. And that's not something that we see from a lot of these other coaches. Uh, I, I think what it comes down to in this question is, as I'm thinking through this, is I, I don't know how much coaching talent there is in this pool. Uh, you took out Bradley and Toronto, and I think those two are clearly the yeah. top options jim Curtin just to not do him a disservice has done a good job with the union this year but outside of those guys brian schmetzer as well deserves a little bit of a mention but outside of those two vanny and then you know bradley and torrent i'm not sure how many of these other guys i'd be comfortable leading the united states national team uh, as they try to qualify for a world cup that makes sense and that is why i removed those two from the beginning because i had a feeling <laughs> that your know. answer was oh. going to be bob bradley again otherwise yeah, it's not. That was very wise. I think you made the right decision to make my life a little bit more difficult. Then I try, I try, and uh, I may have already asked you this, but I just want to make sure we get it on record. If there were one game that our listeners were going to tune in to watch uh, of the six we've discussed, which one do you think is most interesting for neutrals for whatever reason? Ooh, that's that's a really good one. Oh, that's so hard. I would say... I'll buy you some time. I'll buy you some time. One more time for people who are less familiar with the playoffs. Uh, Saturday, we've got Atlanta v. New England, Seattle v. FC Dallas, Toronto, D.C. United, and RSL Portland. Then Sunday, we've got Philadelphia versus the New York Red Bulls, Minnesota versus the Galaxy Sunday evening. And then Joe will be back on the show sometime next week, uh, likely early next week, to sort of break down what happened in the playoffs and look ahead to the next round. Now, Joe, which of those games that I've just mentioned do you think would be the most exciting Four neutrals. I'm still talking to slow it down, to buy you time. What, how say you? I'm composed now. I'm ready. Okay. Um, 
I would say Minnesota and the Galaxy, just from a purely entertaining, a pure entertainment perspective. That could be a fun one. It could be end to end. You have Ibra in that one. You have Ibrahimovic. Uh, it could be a really interesting game to watch. And then there are also some fun tactics involved. Whether you know which team is better able to contain the other team's attack. You know, use their defensive structure to win the ball and go from there. So. I would say that one, it's it's late on, on Sunday as well. And then I'm just going to pitch two other ones real quick. Sure. Atlanta, New England, and then Seattle and Dallas. Those mm-hmm. are both going to be ones that I have my eye on on Saturday. I think those are both going to be really fun games, a nice clash of styles that could really make for some fun soccer out after after you've gone through and sat and enjoyed Minnesota and the Galaxy, even though those two I just mentioned happened a day before. <laughs> I was a little confused by the timeline. How's but that for timing? Yeah, I'm uh, not that, confusing people at all. Yeah, that's fine. Um, and as I said, Joe, we'll be back next week to to look back on these games uh, after they have happened, look ahead to the next round of the playoffs. Uh, but until then, Joe, I really appreciate you taking the time. You've written a lot about Major League Soccer, a lot about the U.S. national team. It's uh, all very great, very informative, and I appreciate you somehow remembering it all and then helping me make sense of these playoffs uh, on today's show. I always have fun coming on, Taylor. Thanks again for having me. 